Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is my good friend, Jerry Hill from Connect and Sell. Jerry, welcome. Hey, Marcus. Good to be back. Excellent. Jerry, give people 60 seconds on your background so they can see why I've had dragged you on here. <laughs> well, firstly, grumpy, I'll, I'll work backwards. Grumpy old man, have opinions on some of the inefficiencies in how people go to market, which are pullingly frustrating. Prior to that, CRO, fractional CRO for a range of pre-revenue startups, built big business development teams in management consultancy, and in career number one was a terrible professional rugby player. Excellent. Okay. So let's start out with something that I know you and I are both uh, rabid about. How do speculators dressed up as investors fuck up perfectly good businesses? Uh, I think the starting point is that they model perfectly good businesses in a spreadsheet based on an MBA that they got from a top 20 institution somewhere and three years in an investment bank with no real understanding or grounding in how to operate anything. That would be opinion number one. (laughs) Opinion number two, you and I have spoken at length about this, but venture capital has lost its way in a significant, significant way. Think about the term venture. It's not safe capital, it's venture capital. It's designed to fuel innovation, big ideas. Intel wouldn't have happened without it. Apple wouldn't have happened without it. But now we've just found people that found a way to rationalize an asset class, take bets and take safe bets at that. And they end up driving businesses into what kind of stupid behaviors? Let's put the money to work. And most people don't actually know how to do that. So when they put money to work, they do it grossly and obscenely like a thin kid at an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet that's never seen food before. (laughs) They go out and grab buildings and properties and MacBooks and beer fridges and, you know, hire an army of people who are underqualified to execute and who, even worse, haven't got a product market fit or a message market fit beyond two or three early traction customers that the founders ultimately won from their Rolodex. So that would be the primary answer. How do they get invested in? Outstanding storytelling, brilliant decks, and a rationalization that they're heading towards some sort of macro mega trend out into the future, but ultimately hard to prove or disprove. So then it comes back to the model and the founder credibility. And then what you find is you end up in this cycle of people only investing in other people that look like themselves. You just end up in this sort of self-diminishing market of intellectual arrogance from investor to founder to risk taker. And it just burns out a lot of appetite for the capability because you're going to fail big, not fail small. And you're going to take your time. I think my biggest frustration is that people assume that headcount equals growth, growth equals scale, scale equals return on investment. Most VCs don't want to see profitability, so they do everything that they can in a board meeting to drive that under the table. And then, um, you know, it takes six, seven, 12, 24 months to even identify whether or not they've got the relevant traction. So when you put the math together, it just simply doesn't work, right? More often than not, what I see is organizations that don't have a long-term view about where they need to specialize. And so they end up building this massive sales pipeline full of the wrong type of people. Uh, which eats up a vast amount of highly skilled, expensive sales resource that's fueled by 
marketing qualified leads, which are largely ignored. The second time in under two months, I've been talking to a VP of sales and his frustration, or their frustration rather, is they get a thousand inquiries through their website for free downloads of their freemium enterprise product, of which only 200 bother to open it, only 20 turn it on, and they end up with six leads. When you look at the amount of money that must have been squandered to attract those people to the website, and you know, let's say it's 20 bucks a pop to capture their email, and let's face it, the email that people give is generally not their main email. It's the one they use to download stuff and to get freebies. So they've just spent the best part of, uh, I don't know, let's say 20 grand each month in order to acquire 99.94% of emails that are pointless because none of those opportunities. And every one of those probably has to be followed up somehow. And net result of that is your salespeople are probably spending an inordinate, obscene amount of time talking to non-buyers, non-prospects in the wrong market. Is that fair? Yeah, my simple answer to that is have marketeers that are willing to gate for phone numbers again. Sorry, say again? Have marketeers who are willing to gate phone numbers again on that transaction, that web form. What do you mean by gate? So most content's gated. There's a big debate in demand generation about whether content should even be gated. It should be this free thing that we give away. Awesome, but terrible. Then if you do gate it, so you have to exchange some information to receive something back from that mechanism, most people have lost the behavior of asking people for their phone number. Just give us an email address. Yeah. And then people get frustrated when they can't follow up because when we look at the data from HubSpot, who've been tracking email from salesperson to prospects since the beginning of 2020, we see minus 33% response rate right now. Minus 33%. Minus, below the line. So it's a year-on-year benchmark. It's a year-on-year benchmark. So if you look at where email open rates were 15 months ago, people were opening it at 2%. Now, their chart is tracking email reply rate compared to the preceding period 12 months earlier as a minus number. So people are still opening it, but just not at the same flow rate, right? And what's the conversion rate once they have opened it? The data is not there. But here's the frightening thing. People are sending more emails than they've ever sent before. Yeah. And if a lot of that's based on low-hanging fruit, we've got an MQL because somebody showed a little bit of intent because they exchanged some information. And then they forget about it, right? Nobody remembers stuff. I download stuff all the time and completely forget about it. Probably looked at about five or six solutions to create a calculator last year. You know, we've got quite a complex sizing model at Connect and Sell. And I just wanted to see if I could make it more attractive and easier. But it was a side project. wasn't cool. Nobody phoned me, and I looked at about six or seven different people that could claim to help me. Now, if somebody had phoned me, at least I've got an opportunity to drive a conversation, qualify somebody, have an input-output mechanism remind me that I downloaded it, by the way, prompt me. And people just don't do that. So I reckon you could solve a lot of the MQL trauma that VPs of sales experience by simply putting one more field in that web form and going, give me a phone number. I guarantee that the flow rate of leads might diminish, 
Yeah. Let's say it's a thousand, you're probably going to get 750. That's a qualifying mechanism in and of itself. Create a routing mechanism so that somebody can phone that person within minutes of that download, and you can eliminate a lot of the cost bullshit that exists. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about connect and sell, because I want to explore uh, another theme. Yeah, so every single salesperson in the world will at some point have had to be proactive about getting onto the telephone and prospecting to try and get hold of somebody that they want to speak to today in their market. Connect and sell ultimately eliminates all of the waste and frustration that most salespeople would experience in trying to get hold of that person. But let's look at the data. You're looking at a dial to connect rate today of about 33 dials to get hold of one person in a business. You're looking at about 15 manual dials an hour that can be executed by a human being. You know, we've done the time and motion. Then look at the 41% of phone calls that require layers of navigation to actually get hold of that person. 41% of calls made into enterprise today require two layers of navigation. Each one of those layers of navigation is about two to three minutes of waste. And guess where you end up most of the time? In a voicemail somewhere. So with Connect and Sell, what we essentially do is we act as a bypass mechanism for all of that routing, all of those dial-by-name directories that you manually have to execute, all of the voicemail drops, and simply deliver the live conversation with somebody into your ear when that prospect picks up the phone. And that can range from you know three minutes to 10 minutes, depending on your market or seniority. But ultimately, we're taking the 90 minutes to two hours that it takes to get hold of somebody, and it compresses all of that time my team swallows all of the waste. The technology drives the efficiency for you. And at the end of the day, you've got you know, 10 or 11 conversations over a two-hour period that you would never otherwise have found. What we find it does for our customers is just transform how rapidly they can go to market and make better quality choices on messaging, lists, strategy, product. So all of those outputs come out of that conversation flow. So how many conversations per hour based on your time and motion study and uh, the actual stats, is the average account executive being paid somewhere between 50 and 150 grand a year able to achieve? For an AE, it's going to be probably one conversation a day because they're not allocating enough time to be proactive about their prospecting in 90% of instances. For a BDR or an SDR, you're probably looking at one conversation every 90 minutes right now. Okay, so that means that they can do three and a half to four a day at the yeah. outside. If all they do is call, by the way. Right. Forget about all the other sort of tools and kits and channels available to them. As uh, opposed to five to six an hour. Yeah. Okay. So virtually every VP of sales, every VP of marketing says we need more leads or we need uh, our leads to be better quality. Um, and if you're spending your time beating your head against the wall, just getting uh, caught up in voicemail, it's soul destroying. Yeah. So the question I would ask anyone in that position is how much time do you want your highly paid, highly trained salespeople and BDRs and SDRs having uh, conversations with a voicemail or not getting through to anyone or battling through reception? Because it strikes me that unless we have a serious rethink 
because we want to save a little bit of money here, thinking that uh, the sunk cost on our balance sheet of all these different salaries means that um, we shouldn't, we should be using our uh, existing resource to make those prospecting calls. And yes, you should be having prospecting calls, but they shouldn't be dial attempts. And so there are a number of technologies out there and a number of services that allow organizations to be extremely efficient. So let me ask you this. Once someone gets through to a senior decision maker, what is it they have to do in the first 30 to 90 seconds in order to then earn the right for a further two, three, four-minute conversation? Yeah, I mean, your context is obviously quite sandler heavy, but we've got a messaging construct that we help our customers with. We we look at some of the psychology of it, and, and the motion is you take somebody who's a complete stranger. You know, if I was to call, call Marcus, Marcus is a complete stranger. It's probably a deep fear for most people getting that cold call, speaking to somebody they've never spoken to before. It's a crock brain fear. It's not a rational fear. It sits there in the, you know, the, the primal brain. And so you've got to move them from that state. The big issue that I see is so many marketing people have got their hands on the messaging that the first thing that comes out of most reps' mouth is, I would like to tell you about how outstanding Gartner measured content that does X, Y, Z for so-so and so-and-so. Largely irrelevant, right? Because guess what? Your market's probably not as much of an expert as you are. So you're going to bombard them with terms and taxonomies and language that they just simply don't understand. And you've done nothing to move them to a curious state. So the whole shape of a cold call is fear, trust, curiosity. And you've got about 27 seconds, 30 seconds to get through that so that you have the right to a deeper conversation. You know, everyone's got different theories. Ben Dennehy is, this is a cold call. Justin Michael runs sort of rip, ruin, replace. You know, he just goes straight into it. Marcus, you'd be like, Marcus, are you responsible for business development over at? Doesn't even allow people the opportunity to think, right? We use the pattern interrupt, we call it, um, you know, we, we will sort of ask for 27 seconds and acknowledge the fact that we've interrupted somebody's day. And then we never talk about product, right? We don't want product to be in the conversation because the number one objection that exists out in the world today is a derivative of we're okay for that, we're covered, we're set, or we've already got something for that. Because again, sales reps are just so obsessed with talking about their product proposition service at the outset. And it's a function of not having enough calls, by the way. One of it is a function of not having enough calls. If I've got a scarcity mindset and I suddenly get Marcus on the end of the phone, this is my one chance, God damn it. <laughs> and I'm going to saturate him with absolutely everything I've got, hoping that some of it will land. If you've got an abundance mindset, you can just simply be curious or drive somebody to curiosity and be convicted. What are you selling? You're not selling your product or service. You're selling the value of that future meeting. Well, no one buys products or services. They rent the outcome. And unless you are timely, relevant, and deliver value early in the conversation, you're going to get told, send me some information, or we're not interested, we're covered, um, yep. or they'll pass you down the chain of command uh, to someone in Siberia, and that's mm -hmm. where you'll stay. And you have to make sure that you think as the customer. 
And too often, in my experience, salespeople are thinking about the customer if they think about them at all. But what they're really thinking about is hitting my quota and keeping my manager off my back and making sure I've still got a job at the end of the month. Um, and that feeds that crocodile brain, that feeds that scarcity mentality. So what's the intent that a good prospector starts with before they even pick up the phone? I am here to help you. Absolutely. And That's you've it. reflected back what you project out. Yeah. So again, you mentioned that you have to acknowledge and be respectful of the fact that you have interrupted their day. There was a McKinsey study that came out, I think it was in 2019, that said that 87% of chief executives hate receiving cold calls. In the same study, 83% said they love receiving good cold calls. Because CEOs, CFOs, are actually talent spotters, and they have problems, and they want help. I interviewed a fascinating chap called Jack Shamas about 18 months ago, and uh, he talked specifically about this kind of issue. He looks forward to salespeople coming into his office because they can help him shortcut ways around the fires he has to put out. Yep. So, yeah, and I think, I think quality is a big measure for people, but it's so wildly misattributed. What is quality? What is a quality conversation? And nobody can really define it. Surely a quality conversation is you've just been useful enough for somebody to be curious enough about how you might help them in the future. Surely that's it. And if we actually look at the maths, the buyer's pyramid, you know, Denning's one of my favorite economists. And the reality is you're in a replacement or displacement cycle for any B2B product of service in 12 quarters. So that's three years. Okay, that means that the market is about 3% prime to buy today. Somebody's actively seeking out to solve the problem that you've got right now. There's a broader 8% of the market that's potentially curious enough to actually engage with you on an academic, intellectual, curious level and start the process of exploration. And then there's the whopping great long tail that just don't care right now. They just don't care. And no matter what judo rolls or crocodile flips or anything that you do as a skilled salesperson, there's no getting away from the percent. Only 11% of the market is inherently curious or qualified. So my mindset shifted significantly over the past two years, which is meetings are autumn, but you can make that a consistent output. If you've got a good message, a good rep, and a good list, and you give them enough conversations, they'll just churn out meetings every day at 10% of the conversations that they have. Here's what they're really solving for in my new belief system, Marcus. They're solving for the moment in the future when they need to re-engage. You can solve for that re-engagement cycle. Call me back in three months. Call me back in six months. Call me back in two weeks and actually have a group of salespeople that are disciplined enough to follow up with people meticulously when the timing signal unveils itself to you, then you never, ever really have to worry about the, the bullshitty stuff, the fake opportunities, the I'm just curious, but I'll never buy opportunities. You can absorb all of those because you just have this autumn timing mechanism. It's like a supply chain. The goods will be ready for you in 10 days. I'm getting sized for some new golf clubs. They'll be ready for me right. in five weeks' time, right? It's the same concept. 
It's a demand and supply chain that helps you understand when somebody's going to be ready to be in window for you again. You reckon they're going to improve your game? I need all the help I can get, Marcus. <laughs> I think six foot six off the shelf doesn't work for me, though. That's the problem. So, <laughs> so in terms of mindset, what makes for a good new business developer in terms of their mindset, their values, their beliefs? So I'm going to give you a story. I'm four weeks into being a new father for the first time. So as you can imagine, I'm not getting a huge amount of sleep. Thank you very much. But when I can grab the opportunities to go and have a shower or get in the bath or something, I will. This morning, I got a cold call from a UK mobile number at 6.29 a.m. Wow. (laughs) And I couldn't have been happier. I called him back at 8 o'clock and we had a very long conversation and everything that I think about mindset and curiosity and values was crystallized in that story. It seemed that I take calls. He saw that my moral compass was that I'm pretty much always on. He saw that I was open to helping. You know, people are curious. They asked me, how can I become better at this? It wasn't that he was pitching a service to me, Marcus. He was phoning me for advice at 6.29 a.m. in the morning. That's kind of a summary or a snapshot of of where we like to head. I think the other thing that frustrates me, and it flies in the face of the conventional wisdom, and it comes back to your earlier question about the VC piece, is we're often putting our least experienced people who don't even know who they are as humans yet or what they want from their life yet to hard, reluctant work at the top of the funnel. Our moral philosophy connecting cells actually very different we put our sdr team to the top of the funnel work they're all matured people you know they're they're late 30s early 40s we measure them on their voice quality we test them for their boredom threshold they can have conversations over and over and over again the no's never get to them the yeses never get to them they work for five six hours a day just speaking to people and They're just very balanced, calm, measured, resilient people who turn up and do a good, honest day's work. We don't promote them. You know, there's no career path for an SDR at Connect and Sell into an AE job, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's it. That's their job. That's what they do. They earn good money for it. Now, if I look at every other software company under the sun, (laughs) it's the complete opposite. They've got young people, first jobbers, second jobbers, I haven't figured out if sales is right for them as a career. They want to get into the advanced stuff really quickly. They're always nagging on their bosses, sort of coattails. When can I go and be an AE? I want to be an AE now. Tell me when I can be an AE. And they've just not got the durability yet to to actually get into the high-pressure job. They think that, you know, the SDR job's high-pressure. Wait until you've got a million-dollar bogey hanging over your head at 23 years old, 24 years old. Yeah. So so I struggle with that one a lot. And I think it's because, you know, Chris Topman, Notion Capital, awesome dude, achieved a lot, sold message labs. He's an actual operator who set up a VC fund. But I remember engaging with him once and he was like, Yeah, but big's good, big's beautiful, it accelerates the learning. And I was like, but it accelerates the failure as well. And your friend of mine, Justin Michael, me and him had a conversation on this last night. Wars are fought differently today. You know, wars aren't big set piece things anymore. No. You know, when my when my dad was in the army, he was 
stopping the Russians rolling over the German border, and there were going to be a hundred thousand of them, and that's yeah. how they were going to win the war. Now, now today, are micro forces? Oh. No, it's micro forces. It's a group of twenty-eight men and women who use technology, have precision aggression with the force of a battalion. I wish we'd kind of apply that to how companies go to market. Apply precision with maximum aggression with the force of a battalion with 20 of your best people rather than 200 of your mediocre people. That's definitely the philosophy that I've implemented within our channels. And what I'm finding is that we're able to help people grow 500, 1,000%, 4,000% in a year. And when you start compounding that year on year on year, that really makes for a hell of a difference because all the people who make you successful are handsomely rewarded and they're desperately loyal because they're all in it together and they you can pay real attention to them. And so talk to me about the approach that you take as a manager towards coaching. Yeah, I mean, coaching is highly tactical. It isn't like philosophical, right? You have strategists for that. You have people that set the strategy and point the strategy. What the salespeople ultimately need to do, they need to execute that strategy. And coaching is where strategy meets tactics. Tactics are about the talk track. It's about the conversation quality. It's about the words that people use. It's the precision words that people use where in the conversation and how in the questions that they ask. So the inverse to that is adults learn very differently to kids. You know, I can tell a five-year-old to just do something repetitively and they'll learn that through repetition. Adults are slightly different. They want to challenge why you need them to do things in a certain way, especially with experienced sales hires. But I've done it this way. No, not yet. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Why? 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 But humans need evidence. They need data. They need insights and they need to come up with the answers for themselves and then they need to seek out help. So there's only so much actual coaching you can do that doesn't have that methodology attached. How do I get Marcus to become aware of an issue? How do I get Marcus to self-diagnose it with me and ask me for my help so that I can? And the work of guys like Richard Smith at Refract and Kevin at Refract and the guys in the conversational intelligence category are doing phenomenal work but we've got a similar capability inside of connect and sell and i always say to reps go back and listen to your conversations guess what the highest performers are proactive about going and listening to their conversations guess what they come back to you with questions what do you think how can i do better what can you help me to do so you do have a moral compass that you're supposed to help everybody in the team get better but at some point people self select you get people that are obsessive about getting better that are probably a nightmare for for a different reason and you get people who just don't care generally the results prove that you can do your best to level people up But if somebody's not willing to take what you're prescribing for your system and your process and your methodology, they're not willing to ask the right questions at the right time. And then they're not proactive about seeking it out. There's only so much you can do. And then let me think about that previous analogy about the inverse of scale and elite and force and precision. This is why I love smaller teams. 
my entire career has been dominated by a, a downsizing strategy or a right-sizing strategy. It's never, ever been littered with hire a bunch of people, and that's how we're going to grow. It's hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, help them clear the path and protect them from acts of idiocy from above, and have give them a voice so that they determine their own trajectory, make sure that they are people who are coachable, have the intellectual humility to take direction when it's needed, and the vulnerability to ask for help. And it's not rocket science, but too often, and again, coming full circle to our initial conversation, what we see is organizations going out and recruiting massively and on the basis that seven out of 10, eight out of 10 will fail. Um, And one of those two, maybe one in five of those two that make it through will be a top performer. And so you're always operating on the basis of having massive turnover in churn. You're spending a fortune on recruitment. You're paying money to attract them. You're paying money and time to interview and select them. Then you have a training process, an onboarding process, which generally involves, congratulations, you are one, here's a phone, here's a database, off you go. And most of them have already checked out by the first 90 days. And you're back to square one. And uh, salespeople typically really hit their stride at the end of their third year. Now, that makes for, if you understand that and you're recruiting for people who are going to be in your business five, 10 years down the road, then you're going to spend a lot of time working with people who are operating optimally. But if you're operating that other model, you're going to spend an awful lot of time putting out fires and then you become chief firefighter and head arsonist all in one. So Yeah, it's, it's like the firefighter who willingly burns down buildings for the thrill of putting the fire out. Yeah. Risk. And and that just doesn't seem sensible, expedient, or a good use of energy, let alone any of the other business stuff. On that point, I've got a question for you, actually, which you probably will have a very strong opinion on. With the satisfaction of products, do you think that generally the business acumen that we ask our salespeople to demonstrate has been in massive decline because oh, yes. all we all we teach them about is a point solution and a product that they need to sell. Uh, well, you've, you've hit something I did want to raise, so thank you, and uh, absolutely. What most people do is they call it sales training and they teach them about the product. The teams that I'm building at the moment, for the first three months, they don't even pick up the phone. We're recruiting graduates and young people who don't have that business acumen, and we're giving them the exposure. The recruitment process itself is where it starts. So the first thing we do is uh, if someone is interested, we have them send an email or a LinkedIn connection request that makes us want to respond. If they don't give us one of those, then we ignore it. And uh, if it's been ignored for longer than a week and they haven't come back, that's probably a good sign that they're not going to have the tenacity we need. If they do send us a decent message or half-decent message, I may go back to them and say, got to be honest with you, your message talked all about what was in it for you, but not about me. And I'll give them a little bit of guidance because I want to test their coachability. Uh, And then I'll say, try again. 
Now, if they send me a message that does interest me and captures my attention, the next hurdle that they have to get past is they need to leave me a voicemail. That causes me to want them to call them back because I want to check their telephone manner. I want to check their tonality. I want to check. And you know, some of them are really smart and they go on video. So then I can see what they're like in front of the camera. And then I have an, a short interview process. So why you? Why us? Why you for us? What is it about sales that attracts you? And what is it that you want to uh, your career to give you in life? And tell me about something that you had to struggle hard to achieve. Yeah. And I want to test all of that because I want to know that they've done their research. I want to know that they've uh, thought about me as the customer because I want them to really think as the customer and get inside my head. Um, I want to understand that they want more than money because in my experience, salespeople who are totally fixated on the money are transactional. And they burn through customers and they will sell to anyone. And what I want is people who are trying to build a life for themselves, mm. who want experiences. And I also want to know that they've had the tenacity to work through difficult times because the qualities that I'm looking for are that they have a really strong self-concept. They're coachable. They're able to work their way, way through difficult times and they've got resilience and tenacity and endurance. They're bright. I think it's really important that we hire intelligent salespeople. They solve problems. They're very high on accountability and low on maintenance. They've got a good memory. I like that. So that they can tie things together and they can remember what was said the last time. I want them to be a team player, company first, team next, them last. I want them to have empathy, gratitude, curiosity, now, once we've established I've got these uh, qualities through the initial interview process, then I take them through a process where we interview for very specific must-have qualities. And at the end of that, I set them projects and we pay them a day rate, whatever the basic salary is, divided by 240, and we pay them that day rate for doing the project. So they have to do some market research. Yeah. So they do a strategic review of the market that we want them to operate in. We have them do a competitor analysis. We have them do a name gathering exercise and a connection exercise uh, with people within one of the target accounts that we want them to sell into. And at each stage, it's a four interview process. We're building up their capability and we're training them so that by the time we make them an offer, they already understand what is expected of them. The expectations are very, very clear because mismatched expectations result in disappointment on both sides. And if the expectations are not met, I take responsibility for that because I haven't been clear or I haven't disqualified. At the end of every interview, uh, we give frank feedback. We do role plays throughout every interview and then we coach them and then we do the role play again so that we can see that they learn and adapt. Now, the first three months is taken up learning about the market, the customers. So we have them learn about, uh, go onto job sites and get look at job adverts, look at job descriptions, understand where these people fit, connect with those sorts of people and interview them. I, I'm just going through a, a process where I'm interviewing CEOs, CFOs, COOs, chief marketing officers, VPs of sales, 
VPs of facilities management, CISOs, mm. all those people, so that we can understand what it's like to be them day to day. What are the pressures? What are the fires they're having to put out? What are the demands on their time? We're also looking at what it's like when a salesperson sells to them. What does good and bad look like? What really pisses them off? How does a business work? I want them to understand how finance works throughout the business and Mm. how financial decisions are made. I want them to understand the interplay between the different areas of the business and how the silos of the business uh, might somehow see one another as uh, a threat or competitors for budget and so on. So I don't want them making calls for the first two or three months. I want them doing that stuff. And then we're going to put them out to uh, work on the audience that we're aiming for, but people we wouldn't want to do business with. So they're out of territory or they're not quite right so that they can practice the skill. Because I don't Reputational swing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't care whether they make any money in the first Mm. six months. What I do care about is that when they are hitting the phones in earnest, they are timely, relevant, and deliver value that they can hold their own. You know, 23-year-old holding their own with a 52-year-old gnarly... Guys are brutal, right? Uh, absolutely. You guys are brutal. We've got a lot of security customers at Connect and Sell, and I just watch cyber tech companies fit out young, hungry, motivated people in eight-month cycles. Yeah. Well, when you have an eight-month turnover like that, in effect, you have a 150% churn rate. Yeah. Now... What that means is that you are incurring incredible cost. And what message do you think that sends to the other people within the organization and how that impacts the culture? Because everyone is thinking, well, when will he be gone? And what message do you think that sends to your target customers? So everybody is operating from a position of scarcity. And what you're now describing is the catalyst for middle managers to die on their ass as well, because they're always constantly under pressure. And they're the most precariously placed people in any business. They shouldn't be. These are the people who are meant to be recruiting the best people, who are meant to be getting the best out of them, providing them with the tools and resources that they need, helping them to clear roadblocks and helping the team and the individuals achieve their target. So uh, that's a very long answer to a great question. So, I, mean, I, I think most, but, but here's the, the thing, you need to solve for recruitment structurally. You need to expose people to the functional things that they're going to need to do. Yeah. You need to equip them. You know, one of my favorite cold call scripts at the moment is we help you eliminate every single excuse you've ever heard from your salespeople about why they can't prospect effectively today to win new business for your organization. <laughs> now, what going back to that management piece, that leadership piece, You've actually got one job, which is to take the hurdles that your reps identify, some of the blind excuses that are wild, some that are real, but you've got the responsibility to investigate the excuse, find out if it's structural, and solve for that so they don't come up against that excuse next time, or the time after that, or the time after that. What you're doing in that picture of the recruitment model that you've outlined is you are eliminating the excuses early on so that they don't become self-limiting records as that person's career progresses, which holds back their performance. Absolutely. And that is the 
ultimate investment that you can make into the process because it shows that you're committed to helping deliver the acumen that is required to hold their own as a business equal rather than just an appointment setter, which is something I hear a lot in my day-to-day work. I'm just an SDR. I'm just, and people apologize for that all the time and it's a massive frustration. You should but it's because never, they haven't been equipped with the mindset. You should never apologize for being in sales or but particularly being an SDR. It's a bloody hard job and it's vital. And every salary in the entire company depends on your capability to deliver a strong pipeline of the right Halo customers. And the, the problem is that too often sales is massively undervalued and um, it's misunderstood. And yeah, they're overpaid. They're not. You can't pay salespeople enough. However, you need to make sure that your compensation scheme doesn't drive undesirable behavior, that your, what you measure and how you manage doesn't drive undesirable behavior. Because most of the, uh, the SaaS companies, coming back to them, there was a, a report that uh, Sami Abdullah uh, wrote on the SaaS industry, and the median profit margin of the top 100 SaaS companies is 0%. The median is 0% because they're on this massive pursuit for growth at any cost. And, and the thing that really irritated me about that was the excuse was that their biggest cost was people. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying the biggest problem is the idiot investors and the idiots in management and the idiots in leadership creating an environment that causes you uh, to burn through and leave the battlefield strewn with the corpses of perfectly good talent because yeah. you were too damn lazy to do the heavy, hard work up front. You didn't have a strategy. And most people look at strategy as something difficult and complex and wide. Actually, strategy is about having real clarity about what's ahead of you, 10 years, mm-hmm. three years, one year, and working mm-hmm. out where you need to get to and being clear about the customer story uh, yeah. and that customer journey. Because if you don't start with that, then everything else is going to fall apart. Yeah. I mean, I think a strategy is a pretty simple thing. It's from a selling and go-to-market point of view, riches are in the niches. Sorry for the American pronunciation of niche, but it's true. Riches are in the niches. The more niche you become, the more valuable you come to a tiny portion of the market, the more density you get there, the more success you get there, that earns you the right to cross the chasm into the next market. You do that again, right? And you the right to cross the chasm into the next market or vertical. But I see so many companies think, right, I'm going to tackle financial services, corporate, enterprise, and I'm going to do it all off on list. Nonsense. And, and people just don't seem to appreciate that actually the list is a function of your strategy. The more focused that list is, the more likely you are to execute that strategy really well which is why I hate seeing SDRs and junior account executives doing list work. List work is the purview of the most senior go-to-market officer in the business. And if you don't have one of them, it is the job of the CEO. It is not the job of somebody who doesn't understand the strategy yet to do that work. Say that again, because I'm pretty sure people will have uh, kind of checked out when they heard that, and I want to drive that message home. The list is your strategy. It is the culmination of all of your thinking about how you're going to solve a problem for a very specific 
marketplace. Execution on that strategy is the list, the who are we going to speak to. It's the pull list. Junior resource in your company is not the custodian of your strategy. The CEO, the CRO, or the SVP is the custodian of the strategy. They should not be checking out on giving list work to junior resource because the list will never be as well-defined or as tight or as precise as it will be if the CEO does the list. CEO just needs to give the list to the resource and go, here you go. These are who you need to speak to. Okay. So that's a really important point. Um, So my next question is this, and I've asked this of dozens and dozens of uh, CMOs, CROs, VPs of sales, and I keep getting substandard disappointing responses. So I'm really hoping that you're not going to disappoint. What is the minimum technology that a sales organization needs in order to do its best work? A phone, an actual phone. You don't need a dialer. If you've got one, great, but you don't need one. You need your data to be your biggest investment. That data, if you can, needs to be well-researched. I'd possibly outsource it. I'd segment that list, and then I would validate those numbers into buckets. I'd validate those lists into buckets. I would validate those lists into a bucket which is connected people who have connected with me and shown a channel preference i would then validate the list further down into verified there is a signal that that person exists in that job title in that company then there's going to be a big broad bucket called non-verified that's still worth going after but not prioritizing and then you get this big bucket at the back end of it called bad data just don't bother with it don't waste your time on the bad bit And then I could manually dial the verified bucket or manually email the verified bucket or manually send smoke signals if that was the preference I tested. (laughs) What am I going to get? I'm going to get a dial to connect to six to one, seven to one, ten to one. That's within my tolerance of my labor efficiency that I'm striving for. That's still giving my rep meaningful work. That's still giving them the opportunity to say the things that they need to say to get conviction, interest, timing signals. Then what am I doing once I've had that conversation? I'm simply putting people into buckets based on the outcome of the conversation or the email exchange that I've had. So I know to prioritize to follow up on a specific time and date. I'm probably creating another bucket which is close to meeting. So I'm calling those people two days before the meeting to verify the meeting to make sure they've got everything that they need, that they understand the agenda. And that's it. So I need a great big dose of Google suite. I need a mobile phone number. I need to make an investment into the list build to ensure it's of the highest quality. You can do that offshore, by the way, really well. I'm then going to get that offshore resource to call everybody on the list and just go, is that Marcus? Ah, is this your job title? Thank you. Hang up the phone. And then I'm going to arm my people with that list. And I can go very far, very quickly and get some real run rate in terms of the meeting acquisition that I need. And then I can start thinking about layering in complex technology solutions if that's what's required. But it really isn't, and I sell this stuff. 
Excellent. Okay. And if we are going to the next level, if someone has a bit of a yen for tech and they really want to up their capability, what are the next levels of tech that people need? I mean, HubSpot's going to fulfill most of your basic requirements for outbound. It's got a dialer. You can build specific lists in there. You can do some sequencing. You can wrap around follow-up tasks. So you can run a really good outbound motion there without having to buy additional point solutions and integrate it in like you would with Salesforce. Yeah. Set somebody up on LinkedIn so that they can do some navigator-based search and outreach, and that should be sufficient. Excellent. Where I think where I think the outreaches of the world, the connect to the sales, connecting sales of the world come into their own is when you've got a company with a significant growth imperative and they just simply can't absorb the headcount requirement much anymore. Now I work with a lot of startups and scale-ups, but generally where there's quite a broad, deep addressable market and they're just trying to do something of relevance, like a timing signal or run the business into the side of the mountain in 20 days or less, or they've got a new product that they want to launch. But then when you get up into the next level up, this is companies with growth imperatives. Right? These are companies that have got a mandated board requirement to an exit event or something else. That's when I'd start buying outreach or start buying sales loft or start buying connecting. Okay. I'd probably look at um, two other tools that feed what you're talking about there to make sure that the time that people spend on their calling is high quality. One is um, a tool like White Rabbit uh, that allows you to identify who within the target prospect organization you should be speaking to for the highest probability of engagement. And it helps you to align which salesperson on your team is most likely to create that engagement. And it also helps you to um, narrow down your ideal customer, your halo customers. The other thing that I would look at is a tool like Refract, particularly if you're in the small to mid-market. There are larger um, vendors like Gong and Chorus, Mm. but Refract is a beautiful tool because it allows you to record the calls and play them back, but it also helps you to analyze them using AI so that you can identify where you are making mistakes based on a massive database of the best and the worst in the market. So you can see how you compare. And you can coach yourself, and it's absolutely the opposite of Big Brother. Yeah. It's a, it allows the best to rise to the top through self-coaching and allows managers to coach very tactically, very specifically. Oh, no, I'm a big fan of both of those. You know, I think with White Rabbit, I think we're about to enter a really compelling new universe around psychographic segmentation, which I can't wait to explore in my own work. And then you know, the guys at Refract have built something really thoughtful that eliminates the my reps are too senior excuse that you hear for coaching deficit for a lot of leaders and I I just love the way they build value for the entire community you know the community led and that's so important more so than the others so I do agree you know but if I'm running you know a two-man team and I'm figuring out where my bootstrap is and how I'm going to get there you know, it starts in list, it starts in execution, it starts with strategy. Then you can layer that up when you need to scale your coaching, your segmentation, when you've got the data, that's the next level up. And, you know, but it doesn't need to be expensive. Here's the other thing. For the cost of one resource, you can get all of these things rather than hiring that person and setting them up to fail. Just yeah. build the operation off that money 
and then give it to the best people that you've already got. And that will allow you to build the repeatability out there. It will set the tone for the model. So yeah, technology can be a value add for sure. Brilliant. Jerry, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. Tell me, you've got your golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Jerry age 23. What bit of advice would you give him today that he would have probably have ignored based on um, becoming a grumpy old man? I've been thinking about this. But I mean, like, there's, they're all just foundations of your experiences, right? But ultimately, I think I would have recognized that good selling is a team sport, not a me sport. It took me a little while to stop being a lone wolf. And I think the day I did that, I became better. So don't assume you are the key to the success. You're a big part of it, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes around you. If you can recognize that, acknowledge it, you, you, you're probably going to be all right. That's a fabulous bit of advice. And in fact, um, if you do want to progress from SDR to AE, one of the most important skills that you can develop is how do you drive discretionary effort from all those other people who contribute to the success of a pursuit and to the customer's success. And part of the team is the customer. And I think many people forget that. If you do not really make yourself your customer's partner, and help each other get better, invite their criticism, hold yourself accountable to them, then you're going to find your progress is significantly slower than it could be. Jerry, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, I mean, I'm very public. Um, so my phone number is 07702 I'm on LinkedIn. I'm quite noisy. Jerry Hill, that's it. Excellent. Jerry Hill, thank you. Always a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with either me or Jerry, then please do so. My email address is marcus at laughs-last.com. Now, many of you are asking, what do I do? What I do is I help ambitious owners of technology companies who want to scale in hypergrowth, and by that I mean 200% compound per annum year on year, you want to build a solid business with strong fundamentals, a highly engaged team. You want to have alignment throughout your sales and marketing operation to make sure that you're delivering great customer outcomes. You become a destination employer. Then do get in touch with me, either via email or through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.